Miss I, uh, I really had a problem with God uh, from a young age. I, uh, from the age of two, when my father and mother separated, I could see the change of a loving family turn into something else because, you know, uh, now there's a stepfather involved in the picture and uh, he's not as loving as, as, as my real father. And I blame, you know, as I got older, I blame God for my father going away. You know, I, uh, for my poverty-stricken home, for my mother's death, you know, for, for a host of things, you know, uh, I couldn't, I, 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 even as, at that young age, I, knew, I just didn't feel as though I deserved to be treated like that. It's just that simple one. So, uh, and, and, and I carried that, that feeling for a long time. Doubt is this dirty little secret that Christians just don't seem to want to talk about. Even among our closest friends, we can feel the need to keep up this image of a confident faith. And so we never seem to give voice to those lingering questions that are in the back of our mind. But you know, and I know, that there are times that we'll struggle with that shadowy middle ground between belief and unbelief. Times when we, like Job, want to just say, what's the point in life when it doesn't make sense? When God blocks all the roads to meaning. It's perfectly normal to doubt. We can experience intimacy and peace with God even as our minds wrestle with theological and moral and philosophical dilemmas for which there are no easy answers. And the result of wrestling with those questions is doubt. A disconcerting but ultimately healthy companion to our faith. Yeah. I love the music here. I do too. Yeah. I have to tell you, I was completely blown away by Albert McLeod's story. I mean, I've known Albert for four years here at Westridge, and I thought I knew him. But when we sat down and had our first conversation about doing this video, that conversation was two hours long. So we're going to show you that video in its entirety this morning. (laughs) If we were a different church, we could do that. Um, But we're not. Uh, And maybe more than any other series, any other message in this series, I'm going to let his video speak. And I'm going to minimize my speaking this morning because it's such a powerful story that he has to tell. I'm going to fill in some of the backstory before we move on. Albert had a really rough childhood, for those of you who don't know Albert. He grew up on the west side of Chicago in the early 60s. And if you're a transplant to Chicago like I am, uh, you may not know what that means. But at that point in the early 60s, the homes were decent. The community wasn't run down like it is now. But Albert's home stood out as different than the others in the community. Didn't have running water, didn't have gas, didn't have electric. 
And growing up in that kind of a home, in that neighborhood, that meant that Albert was ridiculed. And he bore a lot of shame and guilt, even as a child. In addition to that, his mother had a problem with alcohol. There were frequent parties in the home and the array of partially emptied cups and cans sitting around the house. I gave him a chance to sample everything that was left over as a kid. He told me he remembers getting drunk for the very first time at 11 years old. And at that tender age, he had already figured out that alcohol would be his way that he would bond with other kids. It would be his best shot at making friends. My mother must have been a prideful person because she never would use, you know, welfare or general assistance and stuff like that. Either she was prideful or didn't know about how to go about getting it. Whatever the case was, uh, my aunt showed up and got involved with general assistance and, and uh, helped her find a place. And we moved from out of that uh, household into the projects, which was uh, Cabrini Green. And, uh, you know, uh, as, as much people was look at as Cabrini Green has been, <coughs> excuse me, the lowest place, you know, one of the lowest places to live, to me, it was like a step up. You know, it was like going from poverty to the Taj Mahal, you know. All of a sudden, I'm living in a place with, with hot water and we got gas and we got electricity. You know, we're no longer running extension cords from the neighbor's house. I'm no longer carrying buckets of water from around the corner. And, you know, it was just, it was like great. But, you know, along with me came my friend, you know, which was alcohol. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I know his stories about how people how terrible and how uh, gang-stricken the uh, projects are and, and how they are. Uh, you got to be tough. And, and, and growing up as a young child, I wasn't, I wasn't that tough. Matter of fact, children used to beat me up. So. so to avoid getting beat up, because especially I didn't have any older brothers and I'm only 13 years of age and I, uh, I used my friend. I went to the store and I bought beer. And I sit right in front of this project building and, uh, and that beer made all the friends I needed. You know, and uh, that kept me from being beat up and I became a member. You know, and that's when I started dealing with gangs and other stuff and other, you know, negative behavior exploded. And, and uh, we only lived there a few years because Unfortunately, my mother, uh, she, uh, her sickness, you know, turned for the worse. And uh, at the age of 14, uh, she passed, you know. Uh, so I uh, ended up moving back to the west side of Chicago with my, uh, with my aunt. And uh, things was great again. We had that conversation six weeks ago, and it has stuck with me. I'm still struck by Albert's words. Things were great again. At 14 years old, his mother died. He was gangbanging. He had a problem with alcohol. And things were great again. It's no wonder he had a problem with God from an early age. All the stuff he'd been through, everything life had thrown at him, He had some serious questions, some serious problems. 
by the age of 14. But the move to his aunt's house held the promise that things were about to get better in his life. And, and, and one thing about my aunt, she, we, me and my aunt, we did a lot of partying, but she went to church, you know, and, uh, and, that's, and, and I was trying to uh, fit in a different world now. From, from going from, from gangbanging and living that type of lifestyle to now I'm living with my aunt who's a business owner and, and, and she's trying to do the right thing and go to church and, and show her daughters a, a better way of life and, and I'm trying to fit into this thing and so I'm going to church on a regular and, and uh, I'm trying to get this feeling of God in, in here and you know because I always had an understanding but I never felt God in my life. And uh, so we're going to church every Sunday. And the problem is that we're going to church two hours a day. And uh, when I leave church, the other six days and 22 hours of my life for that week, is just a mess. You know, I'm drinking, I'm doing other stuff and drugging and all type of crap. And uh, I'm just living an ungodly type life. And, and I'm having this problem reaching God, you know. I, I'm, uh, and God is, I'm just not reaching him. I'm not feeling God and, and hearing. So I'm going to church and I, and uh, so, you know, I figure if I, you know, I knew about committing myself to God. So I, I tried, I was, I was doing everything that I thought was right. I, so I joined the church, you know. Uh, I'm going to church every Sunday, and I'm going to join the church, so I'm still trying to do the right thing, but the problem is the rest of the days I'm living this, this, this wild life. And so I decided I wanted to get baptized. I said, okay, you know, because you know, they talk about this stuff in church, you know, you, you're turning your, your life over to God, you know, the baptism and, and making a commitment. So I decided to do that, and, and when I got baptized, we, we went under, and when I came up, the only thing that happened is that I was wet. <laughs> that was it. It's, you know, no lightning, no, no nothing. You know, I'm looking for the Spirit of God to come down and just change me, and, you know, and nothing happened. So at that point, I uh, felt as though God just wasn't ready for me right then, you know. Uh, so I, I, I ended up just resuming my life, uh, which consists of doing everything negative in the world, you know, lying, stealing, chilling, whatever, whatever you want to consider, I, I, I might have done it, you know. So, and that continued up until the age of 52. A few years ago, when my family was gathered for Thanksgiving dinner, I had a very interesting conversation with my older brother. In the middle of that conversation, he said, I think you are only worth what you produce. Well, you can imagine that led to a lengthy conversation between the two of us because our worldviews clashed around that statement. I don't believe you're only worth what you produce. The Bible doesn't teach that. Your worth is because of what God has done for you. You are worth an incredible amount because of his love and his grace and his forgiveness in your life. So we had a great conversation about it. It didn't get heated, and we didn't resolve it. 
But in the middle of that, I remember saying to him, so let me understand your position. You're saying, if I understand you, that if your wife were injured in an accident, became a quadriplegic, pray it never happens, but if she does, she becomes a quadriplegic, she can't do anything the rest of her life. She can't produce anything. Then she's of no worth to you. And without blinking, he said, that's absolutely correct. And she was sitting right next to him. I remember leaving not just that conversation, but that weekend with him. Feeling sad not only for his family, but for him. Because he holds that worldview. And I don't think he's alone. And while we might not say it, some of us hold that worldview by our actions. We live in a culture that constantly measures people by their external abilities, by their performance. We live in a culture that is all around us that lives that way, and it's easy for us to transfer that into our relationship with God. The result is that we do a lot of things, a lot of very good things, for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motivation. We attend church, read our Bibles, pray, we give, we serve. And though we wouldn't say it out loud, mentally we're creating this checklist to help us know exactly where we stand with God. Am I good enough for God to love me? Am I good enough for God to save me when I die? Now you have to give Albert props. He was wrestling with God. He was trying to do the right things. He went as far as being baptized. That's a huge step. But it's not baptism that saves us. It's not doing good things. Baptism is just an outward sign of an inward change that's taken place in our relationship with God. It is an important step. It's a step that God wants us to take. But it's a change. It's a step that just signifies a change in our relationship with Him. Ephesians puts it this way. God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can boast about it. It's grace that saves us. It's not us working to get close to God, working to be saved. And honestly, I think that makes it hard for some of us. It'd actually be easier if there was this fair exchange with God, you know? If we could bring something of worth to God and give it to Him in exchange for being saved. Instead, it's just this free gift that comes to us. It's kind of like at Christmas time when somebody gives you a present and you didn't get them something. It's awkward. You know? You know that feeling? Instead, God says, here is this free gift. And it's hard to accept a gift like that, especially one that's so extravagant like grace. And so we work at it. We try to bargain with God when all he really says is just accept forgiveness and grace and then live your life out of gratitude. Ultimately for Albert, this full surrender to Jesus, this full acceptance of grace took a long time, 52 years, and God waited patiently. God never gave up on Albert. Life seldom goes according to our plans, does it? 
Alberts had his plan, ultimately, at age 52, on how to get his life together. He was going to go into a short-term rehab program of 28 days, then get transferred into a longer-term rehab program. And in that long-term plan of his, his disability income would continue to come into his bank account and pile up as a savings, so that when he got out, he'd have money to go into a nice apartment. His life would be turned around. That's how it was going to work. That's how it was all planned out. Albert had a plan, but God had another plan for Albert. And I had heard of prayer. I had heard of God before. So what happened was uh, when the lady told me that there was no place for me to go, uh, for the first time in my life, I, uh, out of fear or whatever it was, I, I go back to my room and I uh, get down on my knees and I very sincerely pray and ask God. I say, God, please help me. I say, uh, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, that's where I go. And I do whatever you want me to. And that's how I ended up from the west side of Chicago out here in Elgin. Um, and my, that's where my journey of recovery and my new life sort of began. That, uh, you know, so, you know, from that point on, the problem was that I brought me with me. You know, uh, the same attitude I had there, telling these people about what I wanted. And, and you know, uh, and the same thing happened at the other place. I go to, I come from Elgin, I go to LSSI uh, treatment facility and uh, I bring the same attitude. And I'm not gonna get into the story of what happened there, but it was basically identical to the same thing. I'm telling these people that I want this long-term facility. They constantly telling me there's no place to go, but they have a halfway house next door which charges you $140 a week. So that would have left me no change, but... So they tell me that, uh, and my attitude is so obnoxious. The counselors actually had a, a meeting about me and, and came to the conclusion that... Uh, you would not be able to go next door and corrupt the rest of our people. And uh, so me reaching down into my bag of tricks because I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm very conniving and all this type of crap. You know, I instantly went out of my bag of tricks and, and I started accusing these people of all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, y'all don't care about me and y'all prejudice and this, that, another. And, I put out the race card. I did, and, and uh, y'all prejudice, and y'all, you know, you know, how could y'all let all these other people go? Then you know, because I had saw a couple of, you know, white people, Caucasians, go next door, and I was wondering why me, you know. So, and 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 I had seen other people over there. It was all nationalities over there, but so that didn't matter though. They still decided that I couldn't go, and. Uh, and, and the thought hit my mind that I was going to have to go back out here to this world of uh, hustling for drugs and lying, conniving, cheating, or doing whatever I do to survive on a daily basis. And, uh, and that same fear that hit me at the other place hit me again. And I went up to my room again, and I sincerely asked God for help again. Because, see... Uh, Sometimes, you know, we, 
we have to go through some mess to get through God's messages. Trust me on that one. And uh, so I go up to my room and I pray. And the very next day, I go down to the community room where everybody gathers and, and my chest just starts beating uncontrollably. It just, my chest is throbbing and, and I don't know why. And I, and I can't get my breath and I get up and I fall out in the middle of the floor. And uh, the facility ended up sending me to Sherman Hospital. I ended up spending five days in Sherman Hospital. And uh, evaluation was on day 21 again. That's why 21 plays a significant role. In, and uh, so I'm, I'm in this place for 21 days. I'm in Sherman Hospital for five days. And all while I'm in Sherman Hospital for those five days, I'm praying, I'm asking God, please help me, God, please help me, please help me, God. And uh, so I added it up. That's 21 and five is 26. When I get out, I got two days to go in here and convince these people that Albert is gonna be a good boy and please let me go next door and I'll do whatever you say. And like I say, God has a way of working in your life even without your permission. I go back to the facility and these people call me in the office. They say, Albert, we're gonna give you one more chance. We're gonna start your program all the way over from day one. And I just kind of, and it's like, I get it, God, I get it, I get it, you know. So from that day forward, that's when I started trying to apply myself to change. Because I was rebellious, I was angry at God, I was angry at the world, and even though I would call on him, I was still angry because I hadn't really acknowledged and seen proof that he was working in my life until certain events like that started happening. And uh, I started doing everything in my power to change. After multiple false starts, demanding what he thought he needed, conniving, scheming, trying to manipulate people, even trying to manipulate God, Albert finally surrendered. He let go of his anger and the rebellion that was even present in his prayers. Even when he thought he was broken and he wasn't. When he thought he was fully surrendering to God. Jeremiah 29 says, You will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. That finally came for Albert on day 26. He found God. God found him. Seeking God with our whole heart doesn't mean that all of our problems are gone. Doesn't mean that all of our doubts and questions are answered. In fact, I think it's a mistake for us to think that faith requires the removal of all of our doubts and that all of our questions have been fully answered. Timothy Keller's a pastor in New York City. And he suggests that faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she's failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should be only discarded after long Reflection. We need our doubts. They make us stronger. I think having a faith in God means that we're going to deal honestly in our relationship with God. We're going to deal honestly with our doubts. We're going to deal honestly with our questions. And that takes time. It takes an honest relationship with God to have faith. Take stop listening to everything everybody else is telling us about God 
And it takes coming into knowing God for ourselves through some study, through experiencing Him. Albert listened to his questions and doubts for 52 years and finally gave in to grace. He began to cooperate with God, partner with God in his life. And from that point on, the trajectory of his life has been dramatically different. Maybe the best description of what's happened in his life is 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's what's happened for him. Grace changes us. Just the simple fact that this conversation took place between Albert and I is a testimony to the power of grace to change lives. The fact that Albert and I, who both grew up in racist families, could have the conversation, could worship in the same church, could be friends, grace has changed both of us. Do we both still have questions for God? You bet. I got a list. Things I'll never understand in this life. But what I know for certain is that there is a God who loves us and is actively at work in my life and your life and all of our lives. He's changing us. He's shaping us into better people. I see him healing and forgiving us. I see him helping us forgive people that we could never, ever forgive or have relationships with on our own. And I know that anyone can be healed and renewed and transformed by the power of grace, no matter how long it takes that grace to reach us. Every time I get to this party, it get, it get kind of tough. I, I was blessed to spend a month in Europe. And uh, I started out in, in Romania. I went to, uh, I was in Romania at Budapest. And then I went to Hungary. Uh, I was in Prague. And, and I went to uh, Poland over at Krakow. And uh, I was blessed to go to uh, over in Austria, where the, uh, the concentration camps was for these uh, Jewish people. And I was, and I go there and, and I'm standing in the middle of these chambers. And it's like you could almost, you know, just seriously, you could almost feel the spirit of these people there, right? And all, you know, and it's showing all this documentation of how people are actually being, uh, treated and stuff like that and uh, and then it sort of likes let you know that it's not just you it's you know this this just don't happen to you and and then you go up into Kentucky and up in the Appalachian Mountains and you see people just people in general man this you know like this stuff Anyway, you see people, everyday people that's got it way worse than you ever could imagine, you know. 
and God allows you to go in these places and do the best you can to help these people. So, if you're going to ask me how God has actually changed me, God has changed my heart, you know. I think that's it. But, uh, and this church has played a great part in that, you know, so the people that I meet on a daily basis. You know, you you never know what God has in store for you until you allow him to use you the way he sees fit, you know. <laughs>